Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for for coming on and, and chatting with me. Hi, Alicia. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? I was born and brought up in Bombay, India, which is now called Mumbai. Uh, for the most part, what did I eat? Let's see. I ate a lot of things. I, it's always easy for me to remember what I don't like to eat. Um, so that always jumps into my mind immediately. But um, as far as what I grew up eating, I grew up eating a lot of seafood because Bombay is on the west coast of India. Uh, my mom also comes from a community that eats a lot of seafood. So seafood and then coconut was a huge part of our diet. Um, let's see, a lot of fruit. I actually do like eating a lot of fruit and a lot of yogurt. Those are a couple of things that have moved on with me into adulthood. Well, what didn't you like since those memories are yeah. more vivid? <laughs> that's the that's thing that conjures images in my head. So I don't like to eat uh, bitter melon. Um, I do not like to eat turnips. Um, let's see. And overripe bananas. That's something that's actually happened in adulthood. It's um, more, I think it's because I recently, uh, uh, let's see. About a year or two years ago, I made an upside down banana cake for my blog and I had to recipe test that several times to get the texture right. And because of that, I went through several rounds of uh, overripe bananas, extremely overripe. And now the smell and the texture, it really makes me crazy. <laughs> so no more. Well, that. That, that's so funny. Um, you're... You know, you're known as a food scientist, I think, first and foremost, and also a photographer and also a writer. How did you end up wearing so many hats and how do you balance all of those skills? When, you, um, when you're figuring out how to spend your days, like, how, how, do you fig how do you balance all that? So I think I'm definitely known more of as a food blogger for, for the right. most part and then photographer uh the food science thing is something that i've been pushing for for so long to write more about because that's what my background is in um i studied molecular biology and biochemistry uh, before i moved into food um i think it was part of the fact that i started with a food blog and because of the nature of a food blog people usually don't they may not cook your food, but they definitely visually react to what's available online. And so photography was a skill that I had to learn uh, to convey the food across. Um, and so photography is, that's how my relationship with photography began in terms of forging a career. And then in terms of writing about food science, um, that's something that I've always been interested in. It's also what drew me into food to see the similarities between how people cook food, test recipes. It's very similar to what's happening in a lab. Um, and I think the similarities with its differences, of course, kind of blended in. And so it made sense to me um, that this is really what I want to talk about. Right. And how did you, your, your photography style is so singular, though. How did you come, come into that style? Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do with food photography was to talk about the process visually, because that's what I find really exciting. Besides the hero shot and the beautiful photo at the end, one of the things that really draws me to cooking is, you know, the little, little steps. They might seem unimportant at the time or something so simple uh, that's being done every day. But the, I find those kind of things to be very beautiful. So I look into... Um, 
to kind of exploring that visually and see how I can do something, say whisking something or just mm-hmm. adding flour, folding it in into a batter. How do, well, where are, what is the beauty in that? And if you, and I think what is amazing about photography, it's a moment in time, you're taking a snapshot. So something might be moving, say the flower is moving through a batter. It might look really pretty in texture on one side of the bowl versus the other. And that might change over time. So for me, those kind of macroscopic things that are taking place are really attractive. Right. Um, and you and, just, yeah, go ahead. No. No, no, you um you reminded me of the idea that that food blogging is thought of as different from food writing. Uh-huh. And I and it seems like as a blogger, like as same as someone who's publishing something themselves, you have to have like a host of different skills in order to to even put anything out. You know, you have to like be a photographer and a recipe developer and you have to have this very approachable kind of voice in your writing and you have to um, be able to like know how to create a website even. Um, do you think there is a divide between food bloggers and food writers? Like, is there a stigma around blogging still? I think there's definitely a stigma around blogging. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. I definitely think there is that. Um, I, I mean, it was a struggle for me. I mean, I'm, I'm really fortunate to be given opportunities by ed- different editors at, you know, different publications to get a chance to write for them because I know it's not easy. It's uh, not easy to make that transition. Uh, and so I've been really fortunate to kind of navigate that journey, but it mm-hmm. also took a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, work you know it's not it didn't happen overnight that's for sure I mean I took my time blogging so I blogged for perhaps I think four or five years before I actually started writing for the Chronicle which was my biggest um, for the San Francisco Chronicle which was at the time one you know the biggest moment in my career and I it still is Um, so it definitely took a lot of getting to learn how to know my voice. Also, I didn't go into it wanting to write for the Chronicle. It just happened. It was a coincidence. I was looking for food photography freelance jobs at the time. And that's when the editor at the Chronicle asked me if I would be interested in writing a recipe column. Um, so it wasn't an intended path. And I, and mm-hmm. at least for me, in a lot of cases, a, uh, a lot of instances, these things were never, I didn't have a plan or a focus. Um mm-hmm. So I feel weird sometimes when people ask for career guidance because I don't, I, I think when that happens, people want me to kind of give us like a steps, a set of steps or a series mm-hmm. of goals. I just didn't have any. And I, I'm not trying to like um, minimize or, you know, make this sound superficial in any way, but I was focused more on being a photographer more than anything and also with my job in science I did not expect to get into food writing because I don't see myself as a strong food writer by any means mm-hmm. has that changed now that you've done two books no <laughs> I, still, <laughs> I, I still panic when I write I, I writing for me is a struggle because I'm it's really easy for me to develop a recipe and you know work on that um, it's also really easy for me to uh, photograph. Not easy, but it relative. I'm in, in relative comparison. Writing is always um, the thing that I work my hardest at. Right, right. 
And in season, your first cookbook, which was very well received, and it was, you know, pretty straightforward as a cookbook, but it was very distinctly you with recipes that are clearly influenced by the various places you've lived and notes on the science behind the cooking. But your forthcoming cookbook, The Flavor Equation, goes like way, way deeper into the science. There uh-huh. are charts on emulsions and, yeah. you know, you, you you document like chemical structures of aromas and, and the effects of pH on the color and texture of onions. Like it's... I mean, it's stunning to look at and it's all and it's, you. you know, a, a great amount of information, which is go, I'm sure going to be like endlessly useful as a reference. But what made you want to go in that direction and how was it to, you know, develop a, a book like this that's so, so science driven, but for the kind of mainstream consumer mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of such a departure from from the first book in tone? Yeah, so with the first book, I wasn't sure at the time that if I would get to write a second book. So when developing the idea for the first book season, I really wanted to just come out and say, hey, folks, this is who I am. This is what influences my recipe development and my uh, style of cooking. And I wanted it to be a bit more personal because what if I never got the chance again to write a second book? I didn't want to be one of those people that kind of like came out late in my career publicly, (laughs) I mean, though I'm already out. Um, I just wanted to deal with my background in the initial, you know, in the first book and then move on from it. It's not something that I really want to spend my time focusing on, but I just wanted to say, hey, this is who I am. This is how I, how life has shaped my thinking. Uh, these were my, these were and are my personal struggles. And um, this is the food that's been influenced by my life experiences. But the second book, I really wanted to get, when I got the chance to write the second book, which I wasn't sure I would, I've always wanted to write a book about the science of cooking at home, uh, but explore it more from a taste and flavor perspective. Because even in season, I'm more focused on flavor than anything. And then in the second book, I really wanted to talk about the science because now I could talk to people about, hey, this is actually what's going on in my head what's influenced um, my uh, style of cooking, but at a more in-depth level. And I also wanted this book to be about science, but one of the balances about, and this is something that I personally had to kind of navigate. And thanks to my editors on the book, uh, one of the things with writing a science book is that I can get lost very easily writing about science because to me, it's familiar. It's something that you know, that's what I actually studied all my life. And so I can go down this rabbit hole of, you know, a lot of things that probably a lot of people won't care about. So one of the things that I really wanted to do was write a science-based cookbook that felt practical to people at home where they could see the science that I'm talking about, but with real life examples and kind of correlate those things. Now in this book, I'm really focused more than anything on flavor, less about textures, even though texture is a component of the book as a separate chapter. I wanted to do that. Um, And then the other thing with this book was I really wanted to talk about emotion because um, one of the things that I did um, when I was living in DC was I went back to school at Georgetown and studied public policy and health. And one of the key components during that course was human behavior. And I had never put two and two together to see how people respond to behavior, uh, to policy changes. So like sugar taxes and all those kind of things. So I found that really fascinating where you play with, um, you know, like the labeling on the on a box or, you know, to affect policy change. 
uh, for consumption of ingredients, improve health outcomes. So I found that really fascinating. And that's what led me uh, to explore human behavior in this book. Although very like I do it very gen, I don't really go into that much depth, but just enough what I think will be applicable for a home cook. Uh, so I wanted to talk about those things, but how our emotions affect our cooking and perception of taste, but also how taste can affect the per, um, the perception of taste also affects our emotions. And I wanted to do that in a cookbook, um, you know, kind of build a whole picture because I don't, I've never seen flavor as something that's just taste or aroma. I see it as a multidimensional component. So one of the other things that I did with this book was all, I also talked to uh, folk that had lost um, their sense of smell or their sense of vision to get a better understanding of how they then relied upon their other senses to cook at home. And it a lot of that informed uh, the topics that I wrote in this book. Right. And how, how did you go about using emotion? Were you focused on kind of how the visual influences, you know, how much someone eats or the, how the, um, in terms of, you know, when you're talking about labeling and that sort of thing, like, um, yeah, how does emotion kind of affect our perception and our experience of recipes? So one of the things is, uh, one of the things that I read a couple of studies I've been done on this is, for example, if you're in a bad mood or you've had something that's happened in a negative way to you, you perceive food, the taste of certain foods as sour or bitter. It's a turn off. Mm -hmm. And uh, an example that I use in the book, which is based on a study that was done, was about people who've lost a game. And when they lose the game, their perception of food becomes negative because they're, they're sad. So it changes and you're not, they're not really interested in eating. And if you think about it, that's something quite common. Like when we're sad, we lose our sense of appetite. Nothing really tastes good. Um, and this is something that happened to me. My dog passed away last year. So when he passed away, I really wasn't interested in cooking. I really wasn't interested in eating out. And it was a struggle. I remember my husband taking me out to kind of get me um, move to help me move on, but also get a little distracted from what we were going through. I just wasn't interested. And so I started putting two and two together when I was writing this book. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm actually going through these things that people are researching uh, on a personal level. And I want to kind of bring that into this book. And then there are things that excite us. So when we're happy, you know, like um, if you think about it, sweeter drinks are often used at celebrations. Um, You've got desserts like cakes that are used as a symbol of, again, of celebrations, birthdays, weddings, etc. Desserts at the end of, of a gathering. So, you know, the taste of food is it's really interesting how people look at things. No, for sure. Yeah. And. Uh, this is totally unrelated, but we talked a bit once about food media's obsession with identity um, for a piece I wrote at the New Republic that representation in the media doesn't often translate into material changes for the people who are represented. Um, in recent weeks, we've seen you know two top um, mm-hmm. men at at magazines and newspapers in the food world either resign or or lose their jobs. Um, are, I know you're you're a bit distanced from 
this kind of food media as someone who's focused on recipes. But mm -hmm. do you do you think that there will be a real shift in how stories are told and who's telling the stories? And what do you think, you know, food media could look like in the future if if there's different people in power? Um, I'm a bit pessimistic about what will happen, <laughs> to be honest. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I see, I don't want it to be a one-time thing in fear, you know, in response to fear of uh, accountability. That's, I want to see something that's long-term, you know, I don't want it to be seen in 2020 and then come back to 2021 and then it's all kind of pushed back and then maybe like five years from now again, you know, the same thing is repeated. This shouldn't be in um, like ups and downs. That's not what I want to see. Um, what I really want to see is that people who are talented given a platform. You know, one of the things for me this year that was really exciting was the James Beard Awards because for the first in a very long time, and I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure people will, but uh, the Ethiopia Cookbook won the international category. Mm -hmm. That's what it should be, <laughs> right? It should be right. a person who's... And I don't want to also limit people from writing about other cultures. That's not my, pro that's not what it is. It's about kind of, um, and you don't have to do this for everything. Like for example, cumin came from Iran. I'm not going to mention that all the time, you know, in a recipe because it's something now that's a part of Indian culture. So I do understand that assimilation of ingredients will occur over time. That is nothing is static. Everything is dynamic. So we have to accept that. But at the same time, um, kind of acknowledging or giving um, recognition to the culture or the place where things come from, to me, that's important. Also, it makes you look really well-read. So I don't know why people don't do this <laughs> enough because th that's when you start respecting someone. The people that I respect in as food writers are the ones that from whom I've learned things from the people that say, oh, you know, this is actually something that originated in, say, Italy or in... A, say in um, Turkey, you know, those are the things that make me understand better. And also as someone who's uh, really interested in the, in like the science behind food, it also then helps me understand why people were using a certain ingredient somewhere. For example, why date syrup is used as a sweetener in the Middle Eastern countries. To me, that makes sense then because that's a plant that grows really well there. Um, so I can connect those dots and see the influence so for me, it's a learning experience. So I really want that more of that. And I think people who are really talented um, from um, like are getting a platform to speak and share their food. That's that's something that I really enjoy reading about and also to see different voices come in. But it should be focused on talent. That is something that's really important to me um, because you could have a lot of the same old, same old, which happens in cookbooks. Uh, you know, I'm probably guilty of this too. I probably re repeat ideas all the time, but <laughs> it's the diversity of ideas that makes not only food writers better, but also the cook at home. Because in a way, a cookbook can be so much more. It could be um, a gentler way to teach someone history. It could be a gentler way to teach someone about food science. It could be a gentle way to explore culture. And I'm not the person also that says food brings everyone to the table because I think there are definitely things that food actually throws everyone against the wall and they're not willing to talk about. Um, 
So I think that I don't want to like um, sell that notion. I'm quite aware that people get angry about food too all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there should be opportunity to explore and write write about things because I I mean, like I said earlier, like if a person knows about what they're talking and they write about that in a head note, it means so much to me because I view them with a lot of respect because I'm learning right. from them. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot lately, how how important citation is and how important, I think because during the pandemic, I've had time to read again in a way that I didn't before. And now I'm like, oh, if if we all just had time to read and think more, we would not stop being so reactionary and, and superficial in kind of the way we present ideas, especially around food. And I think it's also important that people haven't been able to go to restaurants so much yeah. because- I think it, it's just people have had to think about things that they haven't thought about before because they just haven't had time or it's been too easy to just go out and prioritize right. like the chefy type um, energy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think one of the things that sh- I'm hoping comes away from this, nothing against chefs, but I feel um, it will be nice to, and I see this, a lot of chefs are doing it right now where I feel a lot of chef cookbooks for the longest time were a bit unapproachable, even for me. Like I look at it and say, okay, this is a nice idea, but I need to reinterpret so it works for me at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can do that. A lot of home cooks will probably not. Um, and sometimes I'm not, always not, I'm not always successful also with these interpretations, but I think there seems to be a focus now more on the home cooks where a lot of chefs are, fo- are being forced to pivot in that direction. Right. Um, and I think, that's good. That's one good thing that's coming out of this. There are a lot of bad things that are coming out of this, but I think that's one of the good things where they're building a better connection with home cooks. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've talked about this, how it's been nice to see chefs have to take on sort of a new role where it's less about their ego and more about yeah. knowledge. Yeah. 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 Um, so for you, is cooking a political act? Oh, this is the, I looked at this in your questions and this was the hardest one for me (laughs) because I never know. I've been asked if my cooking is queer or is it political? And I know food is political, but at the same time, I don't know if what I'm doing is with it, with an intent to deliver either of these messages, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And so I, I would probably say that the two statements that I'm probably trying to make with my food intentionally, one is that I should be allowed to cook whatever I want to cook. I don't want to be boxed into just because he's Indian, then he has to cook Indian food, um, which I'm always trying to navigate very carefully because it is it is a terrifying thing for me. I want to be able to write about the food that I want to cook. And that's what I try to do with season, even though it's Indian influenced, it's also just influenced about what's around me. Um, and then at the same time, I also want to be able to have the freedom to reinterpret things the way I want to. I don't want to be boxed is what I'm trying to say. And that is my goal throughout is that if I want to reinterpret something Indian, I shouldn't have to answer questions about why did you not do it this way? You know, and sometimes I do get that from a lot of, um, people who are more familiar with the cuisine or grew up eating it. Um, And this happens to me with, uh, I'll probably get um, attacked for saying this, but for me, I really want Indian people as a community for us to be proud of the food we cook. And it doesn't, that doesn't mean we have to be boxed. Uh, One of the things I did with this new book also was I don't, I do Indian food in the new cookbook, but not 
to, enough to make it an Indian cookbook by definition. But at the same time, I did want to explore some of the science in Indian cooking because for me, it is really fascinating from a historical perspective to see that our ancestors were doing things in the scientific way, even though at the time there were no definitions for those things. And for the longest time, if you look at um, science cookbooks a lot and uh, books on science, they you primarily focus on the science of Western cooking. Right. And um, the principles are the same, you know, like fat soluble ingredients will dissolve in fats. And that's what I've been trying to do with Serious Seeds also is I'm not going to write about Indian food all the time at Serious Seeds, definitely not. But at the same time, when it's relevant and I feel I have something to say about um, the methods being used in Indian cooking or other techniques that I'm familiar with, um, from Asia, the Middle East, then I will bring up the science there because I feel all of us need to be proud of not only about the history of our food and culture, but also about the science that our ancestors used by and developed by trial and error. And those are celebrated techniques that are being used time and again. And I think we really should acknowledge not only history and culture, but also the his, the science that's behind these things. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. <laughs>